Welcome back to the Narrative Monopoly podcast. We are back from our pseudo summer break with a big one. Anthony Pompliano, many of you just know him as Pomp. He is one of the biggest Bitcoiners, investors, podcasters, and writers around. This is a wide-ranging interview from everything from El Salvador to Bitcoin Beach to how DC will end up treating Bitcoin and how they should to one of the most legendary takes on media at the end of the interview that you're not going to want to miss. This is the beginning of a huge slate of shows that we have coming up in the next few months. So definitely hit subscribe and thanks for listening. Without further ado, let's press play. All right, on today's episode, we have Anthony Pompliano, perhaps the most well-known Bitcoiner. He's the GP of Pomp Investments, host of the Pomp Podcast, the best business show, author of the Pomp Letter, and last but not least, a veteran of our armed forces. Thanks for serving. How are you, Pomp? I'm doing well. That's a a long list that uh, makes me feel bad about myself. (laughs) Bad about yourself. I think the uh, you know the best, most well-known Bitcoiner is is definitely a, a crown to have at this point. Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but uh, but I'm enjoying it. and I'm learning alongside everybody else. So uh, as long as I'm still learning and having fun, I'll keep doing it all. Fair enough. Fair enough. So this show is definitely going to be mostly about Bitcoin, and the news of the day is El Salvador. So El Salvador is now the first country to actually accept Bitcoin as legal tender. So uh, why don't you give the audience just a a quick background of of what just happened in El Salvador and why it's so important? Yeah, El Salvador is obviously in a unique position. They have about 80% unbanked uh, individuals. 20, 25% of the GDP comes from remittances uh, and they're a dollarized country. So they don't have their own uh, fiat currency, kind of a, a, a local currency. They use the US dollar as that legal tender. Um, and there's a relatively young politician who came from kind of outside the system, recently rose to power, became president. And he has a vision to use technology to vault El Salvador from kind of a developing third world country uh, to kind of the first world order, right? How can he uh, get to more of a developed status? And so one of the um, things that he's doing is uh, embracing Bitcoin uh, and the digital technologies that come along with it. And it's pretty unique. He did not replace his legal tender. Uh, He actually added Bitcoin as a second legal tender. So US dollars and Bitcoin are both legal tender. Uh, He has created a Bitcoin wallet called the Chivo wallet um, that essentially allows any Salvadorian to uh, go in. They download the app. If you're a Salvadorian and you do this, you get $30 of Bitcoin right out of the gate as kind of a, a carrot to download the app. And then you can use that application uh, to send money uh, in the form of Bitcoin to anyone else uh, who has the app completely for free. So if somebody in another country downloads it and wants to send it to you, it's completely free Uh, from a remittance standpoint. uh, It's completely free for a consumer to walk in and pay a business, a business to business transaction, et cetera. 
Uh, so it's pretty, you know, incredible um, effort that they've got underway here. It's not just legislation, but it's also um, some technology that they've helped build. Um, and then on top of that, they're also setting up ATMs all around the country uh, that allow you to uh, exchange fiat for Bitcoin or Bitcoin for fiat. And so when you look at this type of experiment, uh, there was already uh, kind of a small scale example of how this could work uh, down in El Zante, uh, El Salvador, uh, or also known as Bitcoin Beach. And basically, it's a pretty small surfside town where uh, people started to embrace Bitcoin uh, at the urging of a gentleman named Mike Peterson and his team uh, who had moved there and, and were living there. And as the uh, local population started to adopt Bitcoin, it became part of their circular economy. So people started to save in Bitcoin. They started to spend Bitcoin. Uh, businesses started to accept it, et cetera. And it's actually proven to be quite interesting on that small scale. And so now it looks like El Salvador essentially is uh, going ahead and um, you know, doing it on just like a nation state size. And so there's you know, really kind of two positive perspectives, in my opinion. One is uh, it took 12 years for us to go from the creation of Bitcoin to the first nation state openly buying Bitcoin uh, and you know, kind of embracing it as a legal tender. And the second is, uh, regardless of what you think about uh, the individuals involved in terms of the politicians, the political parties, et cetera, Bitcoin is a technology that is censorship resistant. It is um, very unique in that nobody controls it. Uh, nobody can debase it, et cetera. And so as they give this to more and more citizens, essentially we're watching the real-time adoption of a freedom technology. And if the Bitcoin thesis plays out, it's likely to lead to incredible economic prosperity for the citizens of El Salvador. Um, and in, so, in some kind of beautiful way, uh, those who need you know, help the most uh, who live in a third world kind of developing nation, uh, it looks like they'll have a, a shot at a better future, which is uh, kind of why we're all here. Now, a, a side note on that is uh, a friend of mine, Miles Sutter, who has done a lot. I know, I know he's a friend of yours as well, done a lot in the background for Bitcoin. He was the first guy, uh, I think, beyond Mike to go down there. And he lived down there for six months. And I know firsthand, you know, he like, sent me pictures and stuff of, you know exactly the idea that we have of of El Salvador in our minds, which is which is just a very poverty stricken place, and just talking about how it actually gave them hope. And so, you know, the question I have for you is: is the reason that it gives them hope is is kind of the the goal for this thing to turn El Salvador into basically a a place that lives off U.S. dollars? It's actually you know twenty three percent of the country's GDP is is dollars coming home. Uh, is the goal to turn it from an inflationary environment to a deflationary environment, and through that channel, the the country will actually become wealthier? Yeah, it, it's it's a really good question. Um, I don't think that the like master plan strategy normally works out when building technology when gaining adoption. Um, I think that we know on a micro scale, uh, the experiment of Bitcoin Beach has proven to be very, very effective, uh, both from an economic uh, kind of structure standpoint, but also for the individuals within that economy. Um, and so extrapolating that out to a country, uh, I think a lot of people think it'll be very positive. I, I tend to think that as well, but we're going to find out, right? N nobody knows what the future holds. Nobody can predict the future. So we, we need to be cautiously optimistic and, and kind of see how that plays out. With that said, uh, fiat currencies are absolutely inflationary. Uh, they're structured that way. It's a feature, not a bug of the system. Uh, Bitcoin right now is still inflationary. 
right? It, it, it has this disinflationary monetary schedule, uh, meaning that yes, the amount of inflation is going down over time, but there's still a level of inflation today. Uh, and that'll continue until about 2140. So, you know, still a hundred years away or so. Um, and at that point, then you'll get into a kind of a deflationary type environment. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks who are worried about the deflationary. And just to, just to pause for the audience that don't know what you're talking about, you're, you're talking about the halving schedule that basically will, you know, the amount of Bitcoins mined every single, uh, some, some period around like the blocks. Right. And then it just decrease, it cuts in half and then continues to cut in half until we get to the, the 21 million that'll ever be mined. Yeah, so it's 21 million total Bitcoin. Uh, the way that it is distributed into the market is uh, every 10 minutes or so, so every block that is produced on the blockchain, um, there is a Bitcoin block reward that comes with it. Think of this as just the financial incentive for people to run the software, to, to verify the transactions, et cetera. And in 2009, that started out, it was 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. Uh, and that was, you know, first 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoin, second 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoin, third 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoin that continued for four years or so. Uh, and then after a certain number of blocks, uh, were produced in about that four year time period, it cut from 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes to 25. So the halving or happening, however you want to, uh, uh, say it is basically the idea of you cut in half the Bitcoin block reward. Uh, and so we had 25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes for four years, and then it cut to 12 and a half Bitcoin. And then that continued for four years. And then just recently, we had a cut from 12 and a half to 6.25 Bitcoin every uh, block. And so uh, it's still inflationary today. 900 Bitcoin a day are still coming into the market. Uh, I can not only tell you that that happens, but I can prove it to you. I can show it to you on a blockchain. Um, and we will continue to have new Bitcoin entering the circulating supply every single day, uh, again, for you know at least 100 years. Um, and, and so I think that uh, the, the deflationary structure eventually will take over uh, once all 21 million Bitcoin have been put into circulation, uh, but we're still pretty far away away from, uh, from that occurring. So I think I think that's a big question for people looking at El Salvador is if the currency, uh, if Bitcoin is going to continue to appreciate in value, why would they use it on a day to day basis? Yeah. So if you think about um, an asset, the asset is only appreciating against the U.S. dollar. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, though. Right. And if you think of dollars, uh, nobody thinks about the dollar being volatile. Now, the dollar has actually been devalued at a historic rate. 38% of all dollars in circulation today were created in the last 18 months. Um, and so if I compare you know, dollars to Bitcoin, the dollar has been crashing. If I compare dollars to the stock market, the dollar has been crashing. If I compare dollars to real estate, the dollar has been crashing. But we don't think of it that way. We just think I have $10 in my pocket or I've got you know, $1,000 in my bank account and, and I just denominate my life in dollars. I spend dollars, all the goods and services that I buy are priced in dollars. And so I think $1 equals $1. Same thing with Bitcoin. The big psychological change that is starting to occur, uh, but will need to be accelerated is this idea that uh, goods and services are priced in Bitcoin. Right When they're priced in dollars, then you constantly think about the exchange rate. When goods and services start to be priced in Bitcoin, then uh, you end up just denominating your life in Bitcoin and thinking of it that way instead. Now, is that that's the ultimate goal, right? To have Bitcoin replace the U.S. dollar as the medium of exchange. I don't know if necessarily that's a goal. I, I think that um, I, I view it more so as uh, the global uh, store of value. 
right? Right now, if I said to you, what is uh, the best global store of value? Uh, most people historically would say, oh, sound money, right? I can simply buy gold and uh, I, I can uh, protect my purchasing power. What we found is actually that's not true, right? Gold is down over a 10-year period and it's down almost double digit percentage uh, in the last 12 months. And so when you look at gold, uh, it has essentially failed as a inflation hedge, as a safe haven asset, uh, because that negative return over a one in a 10-year period is in the face of a historic bull market and uh, also historic devaluation of the US dollar currency. And so when you start to look at that, you say, okay, well, where else can I store assets? Uh, you can store it in real estate, you can store it in the stock market, you could buy bonds, uh, or you could buy crypto, right? Uh, or Bitcoin. And real estate uh, has advantages. It's somewhat scarce. There's a physical um, asset. There's got utility to it. I can live in it. I can rent it out, et cetera. Uh, I can drive cash flow from it, all that type of stuff. But it's not liquid. I can't sell a piece of the real estate. I got to sell the whole thing. And that takes, that's a process. And uh, there's all sorts of market dynamics that go into it, et cetera. So you have an illiquid asset that is pretty robust and complex transactions to buy and sell it. Um, and so uh, there's advantages, but also disadvantages. Stocks have actually served as a great inflation hedge. If you invest in the stock market, you're up you know, 30, 40% year over year um, and, and done very, very well. Stocks, though, tend to be uh, very susceptible uh, to one, any sort of censorship or seizorship. Uh, it's very easy to freeze your assets in the stock market, things like that. Uh, on top of that, it also is very susceptible to monetary and fiscal policy decisions. So when we start doing all sorts of uh, quantitative easing and, and uh, stimulus and, and um, you know, those types of activities, stock market usually takes off. People like that, right? Rich people want that to happen. It, it, it enriches them. Uh, but when we start talking about tapering or interest rate increases um, and, and kind of the uh, more bearish type of monetary policy uh, or fiscal policy, you then get stock market drawbacks or crashes. And, and so uh, there's a reliance on that macro environment. There's a high correlation between those two things. Uh, if you look at bonds, for example, um, you know most bonds right now are actually negative yielding. I think over 80% of US bonds uh, are negative yielding on a real rate basis. So if you think of kind of a 2% inflation uh, as the target, historically, the bond yield has been something more than 2%. So you basically take the nominal return, let's say 2.5% minus the uh, inflation and your real rate of return was still positive. You're still making about 50 basis points on those bonds. So great way to not only uh, preserve purchasing power, but also slightly grow it. Uh, what happens now is one, interest rates have been driven down uh, to kind of the zero rate environment. And so you get very low uh, bond yields. On top of that, we have very high inflation, 13-year high in CPI, 30-year high in core inflation. And so you know, CPI is over 5%. If I'm getting a bond yield of one and a half to 2%, on a real basis, I'm negative. Well, not, so if, start... not if you take out, you know, not if you take out the inputs that <laughs> the, the pieces of the basket recently, uh, there was a press conference with one of the guys in the administration and he's like, yeah, there's no inflation. If you just take out everything that's inflated. He, he, uh, I think you're talking about this guy who uh, is on the National Economic Council on uh, the current administration. And what he basically said was, uh, if you take out beef, poultry and pork, out of the grocery price index, then grocery prices haven't been going up nearly as much as people think, right? You know, I think beef is up like 13% almost in the last uh, 12 months. Uh, pork and, and um, poultry are up, you know, near double digits as well. And so when you look at that, you say, sure, if you took out 
all of the food from the grocery price index, it would never go up. Right. But obviously beef, pork and poultry are uh, kind of staples of a, uh, of a diet. And so it's hard to wrap your head around the idea of, well, if you just take out the core pieces of a diet and then look at the numbers, they don't go up that much, uh, seems to be a little bit more of a manipulation or a massaging of the data more so than a recognition that inflation is here. It's not going anywhere. Um, and, uh, it's probably something that we should have to deal with. I mean, that's all part of uh, the narrative monopoly or as uh, a previous guest, uh, Jeff Lewis likes to call the, the reality dysphoria industrial complex. You know, <laughs> you just you, you can spin your way out of anything. But now that we're on the, the topic of D.C., let's let's shift gears for a second, because basically what happened with that, uh, the bill that passed the Senate in August that is now on the House side and uh, it's probably going to become law. So Nancy Pelosi got rid of any ability to add amendments. And so that that original Senate language is actually going to become law around, I believe it is that basically like minors might be classified as brokers. It's, it's basically like going to come down to what the IRS decides, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. How do you think that's going to impact domestic hash rate? Now that, you know, a lot of it has moved onshore since China kicked out all the miners. Yeah, I actually don't know how other people uh, think about this, but for me, um, I'm, I'm frankly just not worried about it, right? The, the rules that are written on a piece of paper uh, that are unenforceable um, are uh, things that we should try to educate politicians on. We should try to uh, make sure that they don't write the rules, but at the end of the day, they can't enforce these rules. Um, and so I always talk about, you know, jaywalking in New York City is illegal, but everyone does it. Why? Because it's not enforced. And on top of that, even if they wanted to crack down on it, they couldn't crack down on everybody. And so there's a difference between the letter of the law and the enforcement of the law. Now, that's not me encouraging people to go break the law or, or, or kind of do anything nefarious or malicious. It's simply the uh, realization that if you say, hey, your computer needs to issue a 1099, the computer can't do that. And so you can put the law on a piece of paper, but if it's not physically possible, right, if it, if it's, it violates the laws of physics, uh, then you basically get in a situation where you have to say to yourself, are we just wasting our time? And so I think that uh, there are some people in the political circles who uh, they're very well-meaning, uh, they're very intelligent, they work very hard, uh, and they're trying their best, right? They, they have good intentions, regardless of good or bad outcome, the intention is good, and they're actually trying to uh, foster innovation, job creation, economic prosperity, and they want America to continue to be a leader in what appears to be a very important uh, technology sector on a global basis. Then there's other people who know exactly what they're doing, and they frankly are bad actors, right? They are intentionally trying to uh, shut down an industry. They're trying to attack it. Uh, usually, these are people who are backed by uh, the banking industry uh, or some sort of incumbent, um, you know, credit card uh, wires, um, Western unions of the world, etc. And when you think about the difference between the bad actors and the good actors, is I think ultimately the market flushes out the bad actors the people who are doing things that are not in the best interest of uh, their constituency. It may take a while to happen, but I do think that there is this kind of like natural cycle where those people end up uh, uh, kind of getting voted out. Um, but that doesn't change the short-term impact of 
the headache that people have to deal with. Um, and so there's entrepreneurs who are trying to build companies. They're trying to uh, go out and hire as many people as they possibly can uh, to kind of be a leader, be at the tip of the spear of innovation in this industry. Uh, but the more that they have to deal with, um, you know, either uneducated rulemaking uh, or uh, some sort of malicious rulemaking, I think you're going to see, you know, some people choose to leave, some people choose not to build a business. Uh, and then you're, you're going to also see them outsourcing uh, more and more of the work uh, elsewhere. And so, you know, it, it's a complex situation. There's no one answer, I think, that solves it. But I do think that uh, we need to be aware of what's happening because uh, it's definitely affecting, um, you know, hundreds, uh, if not thousands of employees, and then hundreds of thousands, if not millions of uh, consumers. Um, and, and so, you know, we should be the leader in, uh, in this stuff. We should embrace new technology. We should remember the way that we got to be the greatest superpower in the world is we were a leader of the industrial revolution. We built the most powerful military in the world. And it came from an entrepreneurial spirit in, in this pursuit of an American dream where people could pursue this life of prosperity and happiness rather than sit around and basically say, Hey, I don't like you because you have more than me, or, you know, you did something in the world that I didn't do. And therefore I should get what you get. I just tend to think that the whole idea of redistribution uh, is somewhat of a loser's mentality. Um, and instead, we should encourage free markets. We should encourage uh, entrepreneurship, and we should encourage uh, people to acquire the skills needed to go build a life of financial security, which is possible in the United States. Yeah, I don't know when the United States flipped from a permissionless to a, a, a ask for permission society, uh, but I think that that's something that. Uh, is very clear at this point that there's a lot of people in Washington specifically who do believe that we as free actors need their permission to do something first. Now, in terms of the people who know what they're doing, back to that question around what the goal is of Bitcoin, you know, I, I personally think that the bad actors are looking at it as this is a threat to dollar supremacy, specifically, you know, the petrodollar. And you know, my question for you is, will there ever become a point where perhaps the, the United States embraces Bitcoin and says, okay, you can actually, you know, we're, we're now going to retether the US dollar to an asset, which is Bitcoin? Or is it just going to be this kind of never ending power struggle where it's open source versus the most centralized entity in the world? I don't think that there's um, any resisting the end state. Right. Um, what you find is uh, when you have network effects, when you have uh, momentum and inertia uh, that's working in your favor around a technology, uh, it tends to go global and be adopted by people everywhere. Uh, and so you basically have uh, two separate uh, responses. You can fight it or you can embrace it. And if you think of what Bitcoin is, it's simply an open decentralized network. Of computers. And we've seen this before, the internet. And so countries had a choice. They could say to themselves, you know what, that internet thing, my adversary is going to end up using the internet to benefit themselves. We should sit this one out. We shouldn't use the internet. That Our adversary is going to use it. And some countries did this. North Korea is a great example. It would suck to live in North Korea. Why? Because they have completely decimated their population. They have no access to information. They have no access to economic security. They have no access to any sort of upward mobility in society. They have no freedoms, et cetera. And so 
other countries like the United States that this internet thing is cool. We're going to do everything we possibly can to make this a global technology. And we're going to make sure that if anyone benefits from the internet, the United States benefits more than anybody else. We're going to be a leader, right? We're going to be that innovator. We're going to be the challenger. Um, and it worked out very, very, very well for the United States. I think the same thing is true here, which is uh, as we continue uh, to see this technology adopted, the United States and other countries have a choice. Sit it out or embrace it and be a leader. Sitting it out, I think, will have very negative consequences. I don't believe the United States will sit it out. I do think that slowly but surely we'll continue to adopt it in various forms. Um, and I think ultimately the United States will wake up uh, and, and kind of embrace this and end up saying to themselves, hey, we got to be a leader here. We have to be able to uh, really go ahead and benefit from this. Uh, and my guess is that's what they'll end up doing is, is the United States will actually benefit from Bitcoin. Uh, already, we've seen benefits on an economic basis from job creation, uh, economic activity. The United States government has made a lot of money from taxes and, and elsewhere uh, as revenue streams uh, from Bitcoin. And so I think that ultimately Bitcoin is good for business. It's good for uh, your personal finances. Uh, it's good for your corporation. It's good for your financial institution. And it's good for your country. Um, and, and so when Bitcoin is good for business, I think that ultimately it leads everyone that the, the economic incentive uh, is too strong for people to resist it forever. Just a matter of at what point do they capitulate? Yeah, I mean, because this is definitely probably this is probably the most common piece of FUD from the uh, just just like your average person is, oh, the government's going to shut that down, which is actually just a really sorry take on the world just to assume that the government would just shut, shut down Bitcoin just because. But how how would the U.S. government actually uh, become or I guess embrace Bitcoin in the way that you see it? Like, is it, is it the you know, is the Fed going to start buying Bitcoin? Um, you know, again, would the dollar be able to be converted into Bitcoin? Like what is what is the best case scenario for the U.S. just jumping in? Uh, with two feet? Yeah, I, frankly, I don't know what the right answer is, right? I mean, it's a super complex issue. Um, I, I think the easiest uh, path of least resistance and kind of the first step, if you want to walk before you run, is to simply empower the citizens to participate um, and, and do it with uh, without a lot of restrictions, without a lot of uh, kind of red tape, uh, without trying to uh, be onerous or, or overreaching. Um, and if you're able to do that uh, in a um, kind of the right way, I think that what you can actually return to is a situation where we say, look, we are uh, one of the greatest countries in the world because we have very talented entrepreneurial people who understand the value of freedom uh, and democracy. And they're going to go and they're going to apply those ideals, uh, which frankly are Bitcoin ideals as well. Like Bitcoin is an American technology from an ethos standpoint, right? It stands for freedom. It stands for uh, the lack of censorship. It stands for uh, the resistance to authoritarian governments, et cetera. And so if you put that freedom technology in the hands of everyday American citizens, I think that you would be shocked to the upside as to what they're able to accomplish with it. Um, but you know that takes some courage, that takes some uh, intellectual humility, and frankly, it takes uh, a belief in a better future rather than a uh, kind of pursuit of holding on to generational power or legacy power. Um, and so you know, I, I can't predict the future. 
Um, but, but I definitely think that we're headed in the right direction. And, and probably the part that gets me the most excited is we have a number of leaders uh, in the political sphere, uh, everything from local mayors like uh, the mayor of Miami, all the way up to uh, congressmen like Warren Davidson and others, uh, senators, Senator Loomis, uh, and, and many others uh, in the Senate, and then all the way into some of the regulatory bodies as well, the SEC, the CFTC, et cetera, uh, who seem not only to be one sympathetic to uh, the ideal of Bitcoin um, uh, and the ethos, but also to uh, the entrepreneurs and the investors who are participating in the industry. And so it's not everyone. There's plenty of folks who you know could care less about this stuff, uh, but we're slowly seeing more and more Bitcoiners enter into positions of power and influence. Um, and I think that's probably a good thing because you get people who are uh, educated on it, who understand it, uh, who realize the potential positive impact of it, and they'll continue to uh, embrace the technology over time. You know, it, when, you, when you talk about the ethos, it really was the political philosophy that Miles uh, personally sold me on. And, uh, and also the, the essay by Nick Carter, A Peaceful Revolution. I mean, it, that, that's really what I think, I think a lot of people look at Bitcoin and, and the whole you know, store value and wealth creation, all of that stuff is absolutely true and a huge benefit. But in terms of it just being a, a vehicle for freedom, that's what really excites me about it. Um, I mean, it's really this, this it's, it's at the intersection of political philosophy, specifically freedom, monetary policy, code, energy, you know, we could talk about the the fact that uh, it's actually going to be a net positive uh, on the on the environment in terms of energy sources. Um, we can get into that, but it, it's really just this smorgasbord of of interesting areas uh, that come together in one. I think that that's why it's having uh, such a profound impact on on so many people. Yeah, look, Miles is fantastic, and I think that he's been one of the people who's very far ahead uh, in thinking about the importance of the ethos of Bitcoin and, and kind of what that uh, can do to a society uh, from a positive standpoint. And, and so I think that he's probably more right than wrong there. Um, and it'll be really interesting to kind of see this play out over the uh, the coming years. But um, and I always say, don't bet against Bitcoiners and, and uh, don't bet against the idea of, uh, of how powerful freedom and, uh, and the promise of uh, kind of a better future uh, can be in rallying citizens to, uh, to all work towards a common cause. Because I think that's what we're watching happen in real time on a global basis. Miles was, was running a node out of the, uh, the DoorDash office, which was, which was <laughs> entertaining to watch. But uh, let's, let's talk about uh, putting Bitcoin on corporate balance sheets. So this is something that is becoming uh, more and more conventional wisdom, but a lot of these people, especially in like Fortune 500 companies, they're obviously not uh, the quickest movers around. Um, but you have people uh, like Kevin O'Leary, who is on your your podcast, talking about how uh, he's advising all of his portfolio companies to buy Bitcoin, put it on their balance sheets. Um, you obviously have you know Michael Saylor, who is probably going to end up the f- the first trillionaire uh, if if everything goes to plan. So what is the actual benefit of a corporation trading in dollars for Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, look, th- there's no difference between a corporate balance sheet and a personal balance sheet, right? And uh, if you're a corporation and you've got a lot of cash, uh, take, you know, Michael Saylor is the quintessential example. He had half a billion dollars of cash on his balance sheet. Um, and you're worried about any sort of currency debasement, uh, then you've got to ask yourself, what do I do? And I think that he spent, you know, uh, according to him, over a thousand hours trying to answer that question. He ultimately arrived at Bitcoin 
And then he went out and he used his personal uh, balance sheet. He used his company's balance sheet. And he also used the capital markets uh, to purchase over $3 billion worth of Bitcoin uh, in the coming months. And so far, it's proven to be a very savvy uh, financial decision. Uh, but if he had taken that same money and he'd put it in gold or uh, treasuries, he would have had a, a very bad outcome. And so I think that ultimately what you're watching is uh, corporations wake up to the fact that they're not immune to these same problems that individuals are. Uh, they just have shareholders. They've got you know, larger amounts of capital. They've got businesses to run, capital expenditure, et cetera. Um, but the, it's the same exact analysis and they're coming to the same conclusion. And maybe they're not going in all putting you know, 80, 90% of their balance sheets into Bitcoin, but many of them are still doing pretty material single digit percentages, um, which in some cases could be as much as you know a billion plus dollars. Uh, and when you see that happening, um, it, it becomes pretty interesting because you start to understand that there's a lot of dollars in those corporate treasuries. Uh, and so as those CFOs or treasurers start to understand this technology and understand what it can do from a, a positive impact on their balance sheet, I would expect more and more of them to start to convert some of their fiat dollars into Bitcoin. Um, and you know, fixed supply asset demand increases, the US dollar exchange value has to move up to continue to accommodate everyone. Um, so I think that it's a, it's a really, really strong tailwind uh, and it's a win-win. It's a win-win for the people who are uh, holding the asset and it's a win for the people who are converting their fiat into the asset. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty unique mechanism that aligns interest of a lot of different parties. So someone who kind of kicked the tires on this, uh, still not really sure exactly what happened, Elon Musk. So what, what, is, what is the deal with Elon uh, his relationship to to Bitcoin um, and what happened with with Tesla because I think a lot of people watching that from afar were like I you know I don't know what's going on here it seems like he uh, kind of jerked everyone around but what, what's 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 your take on that Yeah look I, I don't have any information that anybody else doesn't have um, you know for those that weren't paying attention he bought about a billion and a half dollars worth of Bitcoin uh, at Tesla. My understanding is he bought a couple hundred million dollars of Bitcoin at SpaceX. He personally bought uh, a lot of Bitcoin. That was a pretty material part of his net worth. And uh, then he pub he publicly came out and said it. He's got a public company in Tesla. He has to uh, you know disclose that stuff. And obviously, when he bought it, uh, it went up quite significantly. Um, and in the following quarter, he sold about ten percent of it. Uh, as a way to test the market liquidity, um, or at least as you know what they claimed, and uh, so he still holds ninety percent of the Bitcoin that they bought. Uh, we have no reason to believe that he personally sold any Bitcoin uh, or SpaceX sold any of the Bitcoin, and he's a holder. Now, along the way, he's got a big Twitter following, and he made you know all kinds of comments, everything from uh, talking about Dogecoin and, and other types of technologies uh, to even going and talking about. Um, you know, trying to figure out uh, the Bitcoin mining and the energy mix and many other uh, types of, um, you know, kind of inputs to that process. Uh, but ultimately, I think that he is bullish on Bitcoin. He holds Bitcoin and he is likely to continue to invest in the ecosystem, uh, whether it's directly buying Bitcoin, it's, you know, building some sort of mining capacity uh, and, 
Sure. Are there some bumps along the way? Absolutely. You got a guy who's trying to, you know, land reusable rockets on drone ships in the ocean. He wants to go colonize Mars. You shouldn't expect, you know, a pretty smooth sailing when you're rolling with a guy like that. Uh, but at the same time, I think he's been a net positive to Bitcoin and, uh, and, and will likely continue to be moving forward. I, I actually did not know that he continued to hold. So that's a great update and positive signal. Now let's, uh, you know, you're, you're building a, a media empire right now. I think there's no, there's no debate about that. So let, let's, let's talk about the media's approach to Bitcoin. So yesterday, you know, the BBC runs this story about how there were, you know, protests and tech glitches uh, about, you know, the first on the first day and they get a picture of, you know, a bunch of pictures of people saying no Bitcoin in El Salvador. They had this story written probably a week before it happened. And, you know, they, they didn't pay attention to any of the people who were just lining up around the corner to help, you know, getting the, the, the wallet set up. They did not focus on any of the positive stuff. Uh, you have, you know, The Hill running an article saying and these are all from the last few days, right? Cryptocurrency makes the climate crisis worse. ESG FUD. You have The New York Times running multiple articles, you know, one about officials worry as the crypto boom invades banking. Uh, you know, God forbid the officials worry. Uh, then you have the New York Times saying, by simply existing, Bitcoin, the most popular cryptocurrency, uses astonishing amounts of electricity. Bitcoin network consumes around 91 terawatt hours of electricity annually, more in the country of Finland. Don't get any into any of the benefits. It's all kind of this, this uh, fear mongering. You know, why, why is the media taking this approach? Um, are you building the kind of the, the anecdote to, to this kind of like fear-based uh, media environment? It's really hard to kind of label with a broad brush all uh, media. I, I think like anything, there's uh, a lot of people who work really hard and uh, have good intentions and, and frankly do a good job, right? You know, uh, my wife was a, a technology reporter at Fortune Magazine for a long time. And I think that one of the things her and I, you know, see greatly eye to eye on is the importance of journalism, the importance of a free press, the importance of uh, kind of real uh, work being done in order to hold people uh, in power and influence accountable for their actions. Um, you know, and with that, there's a pretty rigorous process that goes into journalism. Um, unfortunately, what we have is uh, a lot of the uh, media outlets today don't practice true journalism, right? They're basically writing opinion pieces uh, that are heavily biased. Uh, they don't go through the fact checking. Uh, that they historically have. Uh, they don't talk to the sources uh, to the degree that they have uh, in the past. And on top of that, uh, the individuals uh, in many cases are young reporters who haven't had the training uh, and they don't adhere to the same uh, kind of code of ethics uh, from a journalism standpoint. You hear you know, example after example after example. And so I don't even think that it's necessarily the fault of one individual journalist. I don't think it's the fault of one individual outlet. Uh, it's a cultural shift that we've seen. And there's all kinds of reasons for it. There's societal changes. There's business model changes. Um, there, there's you know uh, education and, and training changes. Uh, there's the whole social media aspect and, and uh, kind of this belief that uh, now you're not only competing with other journalists, but you're competing with all content on the internet. Um, and, and so ultimately, what ends up happening is when you get that kind of cultural shift. Uh, we do still have some great journalists, right? You know, look, look at the situation in Afghanistan. I mean, the, the woman at CNN, I, I, unfortunately, I forget her name right now, uh, but she 
was standing on the street surrounded by the Taliban reporting. And I think that every person, I don't care what your politics are, you say that takes courage. That takes uh, something very innate in somebody, very special to stand there as a woman around a regime uh, that is known to not be supportive of women of women's rights, to literally be beating and killing uh, you know, women and, and, and mistreating women and children, et cetera. That to me is a level of journalism that most uh, aspire to. Um, but when you then bring it back to let's you know cut the media into the financial media, there's some people who are doing a great job. There's also a lot of people who frankly are just bloggers. And I break down the media into uh, kind of three categories. There's true journalists that do real journalism. They try to be as unbiased as possible. Uh, they, they are not trying to write you know, clickbait and, and headlines like that. They simply want to understand the facts. They're seeking truth more than anything else. And then on top of that, they are also uh, willing to do the work. They're willing to talk to sources, verify the information, double check it with multiple sources, take the time to really do true journalism. That's a journalist. On the other end of the spectrum, you have market participants, folks like myself and others who are investing in the market, uh, whether it's the public market, the private market, venture capital, private equity, real estate, whatever, but they're putting real capital to risk. And so when they write their opinion, they openly state, I'm not a journalist. I don't want to be a journalist. I don't, I'm not in this uh, from a media perspective. I'm simply writing commentary on my personal views on a market in which I have skin in the game. And if I am wrong, I will lose money. If I am right, I will make money. And then there's this middle group. And the middle group basically pretends to be journalists, but they're bloggers. They don't do any journalism. They write their opinion. Uh, and frankly, I think that uh, what many of them have been doing is they've been tearing apart the fabric of our society. Um, and, you know, it used to be that people feared the media. They, they didn't want to get on the wrong side of the media. But now what we have is there's a lot of people who have bigger platforms than the media, right? And what they've been able to do is they've been able to now say the truth. And we live in a free country, a democratic situation where we should not fear saying the truth. And if the media is not going to hold people accountable, then we have to do it. And we also have to hold the media accountable. And so when they write things that are inaccurate, somebody needs to say that's inaccurate. And here's why. When they write something that uh, is obviously biased and they present it as not opinion pieces, but as fact, we should say that is biased. That is inaccurate. And on top of that, I think what you've gotten is a lot of the financial media is now owned by fiat billionaires. And so when you look at a fiat billionaire, who is financially incentivized to protect their empire by attacking a digital currency, what you get is you get their employees, people who directly take a paycheck from a fiat billionaire. They write the talking points of their fiat billionaire bosses and the state. And so if we go back and we look all last year, I could point to article after article after article, how many journalists wrote and celebrated all of the federal uh, reserves, monetary policy decisions. How many people were celebrating the fiscal policy decisions? They were literally writing articles saying, don't worry about it. Inflation won't be a problem. Those same people today are writing articles being like, we don't know where inflation came from. It's transitory. It's yada, yada, whatever. They don't understand the market. They have no skin in the game. They, they, have, they literally are merely speculator, or, uh, spectators sitting in the stands Monday morning quarterbacking. If they believed what they wrote, they would put skin in the game. If they don't have skin in the game, they merely are writing opinion pieces. They are a blogger. 
And if you're going to write opinion pieces and you have no negative consequences when you are wrong, then why should anyone listen to you? Because you can simply write bad take after bad take after bad take. And what ended up happening is twofold. One, when the market crashed last year, they were fear-mongering, telling everyone the market was going down forever, et cetera. Well, now we have the data and guess who sold stocks? Most of the stock selling last year in March of 2020 was older people who were worried about their retirement savings disappearing. And so the very people who probably need that capital the most sold on the way down. And then the market turned around and it ripped in everyone's faces and it hit all-time high after all-time high in 2021, literally like one out of every three trading days, we've hit an all-time high. And so those people who sold their assets last year out of fear because they were listening to the talking heads uh, in the financial media, they got screwed. But who helped them? Who, who is going to hold those people accountable? Nobody. So on top of that, now we have people who are presenting, again, inflation. I mean, how many articles do we have to read that inflation is transitory? And then all of a sudden, we have 5% plus CPI, 13-year high in CPI, 30-year high in core inflation. We have the Biden administration just upped their inflation expectation for Q4 of this year from 2% to 4.8%. They more than doubled it. You have 10.5 million open jobs in America, never been more open jobs in America ever. And we still have five plus percent unemployment. And so when you start to look at this, you say, wait a second, those facts don't match up with what the media has been telling me. And then you go a step further and you say, they've been yelling and screaming about $15 minimum wage. 80% of American workers already get paid $15 or more an hour, 80%. The free market already instituted a minimum wage of $15 or more. And so again, it's just the facts don't line up with the narrative. And then when you start to look at a lot of the decisions that are made, you start to unpack this and say, why are they saying this stuff? And it's simply one of two things. Either they don't understand how it works and they're merely regurgitating the things that they're being told. So there's a, a, a lack of competency for the folks who fall in this kind of blogger category, or they actually are being malicious and they're saying things they know to be untrue to simply elicit all sorts of clicks and controversy and trolling, et cetera. And again, this isn't everybody. It's very specific people within the media. But when you look at this and you say to yourself, okay, how many people yesterday when the White House's National Economic Council was talking about the grocery price index? And trying to manipulate the data to tell people it was okay, that groceries are up significantly over the last year, which, by the way, doesn't hurt rich people. It hurts the poorest people in our society because it's an outsized percentage of their monthly spending. How many critical articles were written? How many people are going to hold the National Economic Council accountable? How many people are going to push back on it? Didn't see many people doing that. But you know who did push back on them? People with skin in the game. The Bitcoiners all over the internet saying this is absolute nonsense. And it's because the Bitcoin community actually understands how the economy works better than the traditional media uh, writers do for the most part. They have skin in the game. If they're wrong, they lose money, a lot of money. If somebody writes an opinion piece and it's wrong, nothing happens. If a lot of people clicked on it, actually, they, they get congratulated. They get a promotion. They get a bonus, right? It, it's, it's insane. And so you actually even have media outlets, which is a dirty secret of some of them, 
where you are congratulated if you move markets. So think about that for a second. We have media companies where literally the internal incentives is to write articles to move the market. Where I come from, that's called manipulation, right? Imagine if I said, hey, I'm going to go out, I'm going to create a piece of content to manipulate the market. People would be all over me. But that is, a little, that is literally an incentive inside of some of these traditional media companies. And so when you start to think about this, you, you just say to yourself, wait a second. Everybody that I know now has a television studio inside their home, right? We don't need their permission. We don't need to listen to them. We don't need to have them play gatekeeper. You've seen this over and over again. Founders, investors, and market participants can go direct to the audience themselves. I can tweet directly to my audience, and I will reach more people doing that than I will having anyone else write any article in a traditional media outlet. And that's not unique to me. That is true of most people on social media. And so what you're starting to see is rather than complain about the problems, let's just go build a better system. Let's just go build something that's better. And maybe we're successful or maybe we're not. Frankly, we're naive. It's probably more difficult than we all think it is, but we're making progress. And that's from founders, that's from investors, that's from other market participants. But what ends up occurring, I think, is in the uh, financial world, in the business world, uh, and especially in the tech world, people don't spend a lot of time complaining about stuff because they realize, look, it just doesn't really, nothing's going to change. It doesn't matter how much we yell and scream about it. Nothing's going to change. So it's either build something better or shut up. And I think that's what you're watching happen is people are saying, okay. But if I was the traditional media, I wouldn't want to be competing with these people that are the market participants because ultimately they have something that the media can't compete on. They have authenticity and truth. They're, they're not held to any talking points. They're not held to any narrative. They're not there to try to hold some sort of facade of uh, we're you know, almighty and, and uh, above you. You can't beat authenticity and truth. And I think that's ultimately what we're watching happen. And that's why you're seeing so many market participants with such massive audiences uh, because they're simply saying, we're going to tell you what we think and we're going to tell you and we're going to call it our bias. And then you decide for yourself. And that's ultimately, to me, that's the biggest shift that the internet has provided is no longer do people sit back and say, tell me what to think. Instead, now people can go find the information themselves and make their own decisions. And I think that that's a, a fundamental shift in society. Uh, and that's why you see a lot of these businesses having to scramble uh, to figure out how do they continue to grow their business uh, at a time when uh, you know the, the market forces are, are moving against them. I agree with everything you just said. I mean, that was a legendary, <laughs> that was a legendary rant right there on on everything in terms of you know the media, and uh, and all the impact that the the internet has had. And and you're totally right. I mean, in terms of uh, you know what what one specific point made me think of around market manipulation is Nellie Bowles uh, wrote for the New York Times. So I think she still might. You know, she put out a personal blog about how there is a legitimate culture within those walls where you want to get a quote unquote kill, where you find someone and you write a hit piece on them enough where it, it brings them down. And you basically, you know, you have a scalp is what you have. Uh, and that is just such a negative mentality. And everything you just said is, is just so optimistic uh, and positive. And I think that 
I mean, look, that's, you know, I think that's why uh, you've built the following that you have is, is because it is that, you know, you're wearing the shirt right now, the trillionaire energy, uh, the ability to go out and, and create something uh, and, and opt out of the system. Because I think that that's what a lot of people are starting to realize, right? Is that the system is just so old and cumbersome and bureaucratic uh, that it's super hard to work within it. And back to the beginning of the conversation, you know, sure, the, the legislation that uh, you know, Bitcoiners wanted to not get passed, but it may not actually matter in the end. Yeah, I think it, it, you know the, the Nelly Bowles thing. I, I'm not familiar exactly with that specific piece, but this idea that um, you know, there's a societal shift that has definitely happened around cancel culture and and kind of takedowns and and all this stuff. And, and frankly, it's just super elementary, right? Because what ends up happening is. Um, I forget who tweeted this once. It, it was Naval or Blasi or somebody, but they basically were like, look, cancel culture continues until the, those that do the canceling start to get canceled. And what you have to remember is that when you create a culture like that, nobody is safe, right? They'll come for anybody. They don't care who you are. How many people have we seen that were you know, put up on these pedestals by society and then just as quickly torn down? And so ultimately, I think that uh, that kind of works itself out. It may take a while. But, but again, if you're doing a lot of canceling, uh, eventually somebody comes for you. And, and so you're better off just not playing that game. The second thing is, I think that by going direct, you remove a lot of the risk. You're no longer beholden to what the mainstream media or others want to say about you. And that doesn't mean that you're immune to making mistakes. That doesn't mean that you're immune to saying dumb things uh, or doing that. Actually, that's what makes you human. And I think that what we're doing is we're entering a society where it used to be that folks would show up in their three-piece suit and they would basically you know, pretend like they did no wrong and they had this moral superiority and stuff. Now people run for president like, yeah, I did cocaine. I smoked weed. Like, <laughs> by the way, did you go to high school? Right? Like, you know, it's just a whole different kind of society. Um, and again, does that make it right or wrong? Like, it almost doesn't matter. It, it's just that people are willing to be much more authentic. They're willing to uh, directly appeal to individuals. And th there's more power in being humane uh, and, and showing that humanity than it is in, um, you know, trying to pretend like you're somebody that you're not. And, and I think that uh, that's probably one of the most interesting parts of social media and, and people building these large audiences is, uh, you start to build a level of trust. And that trust doesn't come from always presenting your best foot forward. It comes from actually telling the truth, from posting a photo that when you don't look your best, right? And, and having some self-deprecating humor and, and being able to, I think, just kind of not take yourself too seriously. And you know, I'm the first one to say it. I've done all kinds of dumb stuff in my life, right? I was a 19-year-old kid once, right? Like, uh, you know, and, and so did everybody else. And so rather than trying to pretend like uh, we all have this like perfect life and, and do everything correct all the time, instead, it's just saying, look, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. But as long as I make more good decisions than bad decisions, and as long as I'm happy and I get to do the things every day that I want to do, and they don't harm anyone else, I live a great life. Like I win, right? And I think that's ultimately what we're seeing play out here now is uh, the game has changed. People no longer want to play only a status game. Right? There are still people who play it. There are still some people who find value in it. But there's a whole nother group of people who say, wait a second, the status game is not necessarily the game that I need to play or want to play. Instead, I want to play this other game. And I think that is uh, a, a really positive for society. Um, and 
it's a more positive some view of the world, right? I don't need to take you down for me to win. I don't need to take you down to have some level of self-worth or, or feel better about myself. Instead, I can celebrate when my friends win. And I also can celebrate when people who maybe I don't see eye to eye with, they win as well. And it kind of goes back to this idea of like, you know, there's a lot of folks in our society, I think, who believe free speech is good as long as you say what they believe, right? But if you start saying things they don't believe with, then all of a sudden they want to censor you. They want to tell you to shut up. They, they don't want you to be, have a voice. Well, that's the true test of how much do you believe in free speech is are you willing to protect those that say things that you disagree with? And I think that there's just, again, this uh, level of complacency, this softness that basically has permeated society where people are more worried about upsetting each other rather than uh, being able to adhere to and defend the ideals that make America, America. Right. And, and so uh, you don't have to do it in a negative or, or arrogant or, or uh, malicious way. But you still can be a proponent of free speech. You can still be a proponent of protecting those that you don't agree with or do things that you wouldn't do. Um, and, and it goes all the way to uh, having some level of compassion. I think that, uh, you know, when you live in a culture where everyone is trying to uh, create the next takedown, there's not a lot of compassion there. Right. And so I always kind of chalk it up and I say, look, everyone is going to hopefully pursue the things that make them happy. If somebody works at a large media company and they run around and their whole goal is to take people down and that genuinely makes them happy, good for them. But I just don't think that that's a fun way for me to live my life. And so rather than worry about everybody else, I'll just worry about myself. I'll go about doing the things that make me happy. And, you know, it'll all work itself out at the end. I got, I got a pretty good life. I don't have that many complaints. The, uh, well, that's because you live in Miami now, but, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the whole takedown thing, it, it really is, you know, it's, it, it's like you're trading on someone else's name too. You know, it's like you take this, you wait for someone else to, to do all the work of building up their name or their company. And then you step in and you say, okay, I'm actually going to try to take some of that status and, and trade off of it. You know, the last point here on the, the cancellation thing is the whole, the whole cancel culture, it's, it's predicated on humans being perfect right? Which is just not inherently, nobody's perfect. It's inherently not true. And, and it just, it just goes against all logic because, you know, ask, ask someone, uh, it, it's also anti-grace, right? You ask someone, okay, if you're for canceling this person forever, are you also for people serving out lifetime sentences only in prison? Like why not just kill people in prison? Like the whole point is that you serve a sentence that's, you know, fitting to the crime. So these permanent cancellations, I think they're going to stop. I think you're totally right. Uh, I think that people are starting to understand that that authenticity and truth, even if that comes with uh, a little bit of imperfection, is is kind of the way to go. Let's uh, let's wrap up here. I know we're we're bumping against our time. Why don't you give us just a little bit about the best business show? I know it's it's a, a new uh, product of yours in in the media, the Pomp Media Empire. Why should folks tune in? Yeah, honestly, uh, it's my brothers and myself uh, and my wife joins sometimes, and we just talk about uh, current events. Um, and what we started to realize was uh, there was a huge lack of financial education uh, in our country and, and elsewhere, but, but specifically in the United States is our focus. And uh, a lot of that is driven by people feeling like they can't get ahead. 80% of millionaires in the United States never inherited a single dollar. 33% of millionaires in the US never made more than 100 grand in a single year. It's just pure personal finance 101, having discipline for a long period of time. That's ultimately what drives a significant amount of wealth creation in our country. 
And so where else do you learn that? You don't learn it in school. Most people don't have a parent, a friend, a mentor, et cetera, that sits them down and, and talks to them about it. And so we don't have everything figured out. Actually, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Uh, probably we've got assumptions about things that are wrong, but we know some things and we've done pretty well for ourselves. Uh, and so every day for two hours, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern uh, on YouTube, we just stream live, talk about the current events, try to explain and educate people. Uh, and then the you know fact that it's my brother's, uh, we like to have a little bit of fun too. We get a little wild sometimes, you know, joke around, make people laugh. Uh, but ultimately it's just us saying, look, you know, we are no different than anybody else. Most of the audience is similar to us. They grew up, they did the same things. They eat at the same places. They, they do the same activities. They watch the same things, uh, you know, in culture, et cetera. And so it's a kind of a unique way for us to uh, do some education, but it's wrapped in this uh, kind of entertainment and, uh, and, and almost comedy to some degree, uh, rapper that, uh, I think people are really receptive to, and most people, yeah, they're at home working, they throw it on television or, you know, on another tab and they kind of watch as they get some work done. Uh, and it's a pretty good time. So we'll, we'll keep doing it as long as we keep having fun. Um, but so far so good. Okay. So 11 to two or 11 to one, uh, Eastern time every day, uh, the pomp podcast, everyone should subscribe to that, follow him on Twitter and the, and sign up for the pomp letter. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. It's been a blast. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Bob.